through the New Testament. So hopefully your New Testament readings are going well. We continue to be in the Gospel of Matthew as we uh, are doing this series called uh, Grace Dangerous. And so this morning uh, we are looking more specifically at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And so I invite you to hear these words. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray for your spirit to be upon us in this time. As we wrestle with text, Lord, we understand that sometimes we easily embrace them, and at other times, Lord, we are left with some confusion. So we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to discern how this passage might speak to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, let's uh, let's jump straight into this by saying that this is a challenging passage to read, to understand, and of course to preach on. The truth is, I'm pretty sure I have never preached on this passage because I didn't know exactly what to do with it. And the good news is I've decided, well, you know what, I'm just going to tackle it today or not. The bad news is I still don't have any idea exactly what to do with it. So hopefully that gives you great confidence that you guys uh, decided to weather the snow uh, in order to be here to listen to a sermon where I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. Now I do have to say I was somewhat consoled this week and when I was studying this uh, several weeks ago by uh, biblical scholars who admitted, yeah, you know what, this is a very troublesome and unsettling passage. There were a few, I really like these folks, who said, you know what, we're not sure why Matthew even included this. I mean, there were so many great stories. Couldn't he have told a nice story about a, you know, a a cozy little kitten or something? Something that just makes us feel good. What Matthew really needed, it seems, was a good editor uh, to know you should include this and maybe you shouldn't include that because this is a struggle. Now, to be sure, 
commentators and others have done what they can to try to soften this passage a little bit, to to help bring a, a clarity, to make us all feel a little bit better about Jesus. Some have suggested that, well, you know, really what he's doing is he's just kind of, he's almost toying with her a little bit. He's just testing her to see whether or not her faith was really strong enough uh, to persevere. And so does she have enough persistent faith, perhaps? Uh, Others um, would suggest, well, you know, when he says the word dog and comparing her to a dog, it seems, the the Greek word that he uses is is a diminutive dog. It's like a house dog in other words and this is not some you know gross kind of stray alley dog this is a this is a nice cozy dog and when you think about the times and the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles of who she was uh, were so separated that really it's almost a compliment in a sense because it's like well she's not out there she's actually in the house she's not at the table but she's getting closer to the table others would suggest well Jesus's main mission was to the Jews. In fact, earlier in chapter 10, I think it's verse 5, when he's talking to his disciples and they're going to go do some ministry, he says, don't minister to the Gentiles, minister to the Jewish people. And really that he was called at that point really primarily to the Jewish people, that eventually, we would see this post-Easter, eventually the ministry would go beyond the Jews because they were being blessed in order to be a blessing, but she'd kinda, Jesus really wanted to focus it primarily at this point to the Jewish people. That was his mission. And if you begin to let Gentiles into this, then already there's a lot of chaos around Jesus, and it would just grow all the more. Now, perhaps one or two or maybe all three of those might very well be the case, but I still think it's kind of an unsettling and troublesome passage. And I said to you all a couple weeks ago that we were going to, as we went through this, that we're going to look at some of these passages and that I was going to do my best to not just relieve the tension. I was going to do my best not to try to just box this up with a little bow and allow us all to just feel better. And I was going to try to be very honest when I didn't know exactly uh, what it all really means. So I'm going to do my best not to do that today. And so I figured as we were kind of thinking through this passage today, as I was going to preach on it, that, that maybe rather than giving simple answers to it, we'll just try to take a few minutes to, to go behind and see this story through the view of each of the three kind of characters, if you will, through the lens of Jesus through the lens of the woman, and then through the lens of the disciples. So let's begin with Jesus, because Jesus is usually a good place to begin. So what do we do with Jesus? What exactly is happening with Jesus? Well, I want to suggest that perhaps, as unsettling as it may be for us, perhaps what we begin to see happening in this particular passage is that Jesus is actually beginning to learn something new. Now, that can feel a little bit strange for us to think about Jesus learning something. And, you know, uh, we, we say in the Nicene Creed that we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human. But as we've said before, I'm pretty sure we're much more comfortable with the fully God part than we are with the fully human part. I mean, can Jesus actually learn something? There's something that Jesus, that the Son of God, doesn't know? Is that possible? But then as you continue to think about it, of course, you remember passages like Luke 2 where it says that Jesus grew in stature and 
Wisdom. Thank you, Scott. I didn't even tell Scott what to do there. That's a great job, Scott. Grew in stature and wisdom. So if Jesus was growing in wisdom, it means that he had something that he could learn. Or, or, or later on, when Jesus is telling uh, the disciples that he doesn't know the time or the hour of when he is going to return. That's up to the Father. In other words, there's something that Jesus doesn't know. And then later, you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus wrestling, trying to discern the cup. And is this the right cup that I'm supposed to take? And he's kind of wrestling with that. And so we see there in that sense then as well, this, this wrestling as if Jesus doesn't quite have everything figured out. Now again, I'll be honest with you, it feels almost sacrilegious or heretical in some sense to say that. But it's helpful also because what it means is that there's nothing imperfect. It's not a sin to not know something. It's not a sin to be wrestling with something theologically or whatever else, wherever else uh, you may be, that this is simply a part of what it means to be human. And if Jesus limited himself physically, which clearly he did, could he not also, did he not also in some way limit himself intellectually as far as what it is that he could know at one point? And when we begin to think about it like that, as Dale Bruner points out, you begin to see that perhaps this particular scene is more of a scene of where Jesus is kind of having this almost internal dialogue, if you will, where he's trying to figure out, I have a mission, as we said earlier, to the Jewish people, and yet I have this Gentile woman who clearly has a great need. What am I supposed to do with her? What am I supposed to do with that? And so there he is, and he's withdrawing again. Again, I told you guys, or I asked you guys, when you're reading through the New Testament, pay attention, especially the Gospels, obviously, to, to how many times Jesus is leaving. And oftentimes the word is more of a word of withdrawing, where he needs to get away for a little while. And there he is, and this woman comes up, and she begins to scream at him, basically, you know. Uh, understandably so. I need to, you know, my daughter, she's being tormented. Please rescue her. Please heal her. And Jesus here does what I oftentimes do with my own children uh, uh, whenever they're asking a question that I don't really want to answer or that I don't have the energy to answer or I'm not sure how to answer it, which is that he gives her the silent treatment, right? That's what Matthew says. He just, he remained silent. He just was quiet. What's he doing then? Why is he remaining quiet? Why is, why, why is Matthew so explicit about that? Well, we don't know, but if it is this fact that he's not exactly sure what to do yet, there's a sense, of course, that maybe he's trying to discern that, that he's wrestling with that quietly. But again, much like my children, um, 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 she does not stay silent just because he is silent, right? No, no, no. She's, she's not going to be quiet. So she continues to kind of, you know, to scream. And even though uh, Jesus seemed to be able to remain quiet for a while and it was not too annoying to him, that was not the case for the disciples. They were getting very exhausted. And so they asked him to please do something. Get her out of here. Shush her up. And so Jesus kind of responds to her, and it's this weird, it's almost a non sequitur. It kind of answers it, but it's not a clear answer. He just kind of says, I'm sent for the house of Israel. It's, it's almost like it seems to me he's just kind of mumbling something to himself right there. Not really sure yet, let me go back again, having this internal dialogue and wrestling, you know, I, you know I'm only sent, no, I'm only for the house of Israel. It's a, a little bit, the image I had was of Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, back and forth. 
And so he continues to try to understand, Lord, what, what is this father? What, what is this? I, I, I was sent here for the, for, for the Jewish people, and, and yet there is this Gentile woman, and she keeps begging for something here, for healing. The woman, though, of course, she, she comes over then, and then she, all of a sudden she's right in front of him. There's no ignoring her any longer. She's right there. She's kneeled down. And so then Jesus says, well, you know what? And he said, well, why? I can't, you know, I, I've got to feed these to the children. You know, you can't, I can't get the crumbs to this dog, you know? What am, I, what am I supposed to do? And again, maybe he's talking to her, but there also just seems to be this, this continual wrestling. And then so, so then she responds to that. It seemed to be that she responds in such a way that finally he has a bit more clarity as to what to do rather than just being silent, rather than, than saying, you know what, no, I'm only here for the house of Israel, rather than saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not here for the dogs yet, I'm just here for the children right now. Finally, he begins, it seems, to have some clarity. Now, this may not interest you, but I found it interesting to, to think through verse 24, 26, and 28. Verse 24 says, he, literally, he answered. Verse 26 says, he answered. And then verse 28, for the first time after all of this, says this, Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. It's this fascinating kind of, kind of dialogue from this ambiguity of just kind of he answered her, he answered her, to all of a sudden this clarity of Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. I find this, this fascinating to think about Jesus wrestling with clarity, right? Jesus wrestling with his own theological ambiguity, Jesus wrestling with discerning exactly how his father would call him to go. And I think that's really helpful for us. Because a part of what it means to be human is to not know everything is to be able to be okay at times with saying, I, I'm not entirely sure what this means. I thought this was what God the Father meant, but maybe now God is kind of expanding that in some way. Is this what, what God is actually calling me to do? Not only that, but it's also important to see that it was only as he wrestled with himself internally and as he wrestled with her, with the other that then some discernment and clarity was able to occur. Sometimes when we are with those with whom we may disagree or who cause us uncertainty or we don't know what we tend to do, we'll talk about this even more here in just a few minutes, we tend to run away. When actually in some sense what Jesus finally did was begin to lean into it. And in so doing, did he begin to gain more clarity as to where he was called to go, to what he was called to do. So let's think about the woman. Let's be very frank from the very beginning, which is just simply to say that the woman knew that she wasn't wanted. Women as a whole seem to know that uh, back in that time and place. If we've forgotten that, then let's remember kind of the famous kind of Talmudic uh, prayer of the Jewish rabbis, which was, you know, Lord, thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a woman. That doesn't make you feel all that wanted, I would imagine. But not only is she a woman, of course, she is a Canaanite 
woman, right? That Matthew was very clear. And what does that mean? Well, these are, you know, some of the longtime enemies of the Jewish people, right? To say a Can- you're a Canaanite is like a cuss word in some sense. So all of a sudden, she's got two strikes. She's a woman and she's a Canaanite. Really kind of three strikes because she's also screaming, which is not fun for most of us. But not only is she a Canaanite woman who is screaming, she is absolutely desperate. And who can blame her for her desperation? Any one of us who have had children know that there are perhaps no worse feelings, no more fearful feelings, no more vulnerable feelings than having a child who is in pain or being tormented and not be able to do anything to fix it. And so, of course, she is desperate. Of course, she is screaming as she runs up in the hopes that perhaps this Jesus is going to be able to heal her daughter. And let's be clear, she, she comes up and she gives almost a bit of a, of a confession, really, as she kind of starts this whole conversation. She says, Lord, son of David. I mean, it's, it's as if she knows who he is. And so she goes up and she begins to scream in hopes that maybe this person is the one, this Messiah, perhaps, even if he's a, an enemy, is going to rescue, is going to heal. And so she says that, and then she is met by deafening silence. Again, who of us has not at one point or other in our lives when we have been screaming out, have not been met at times with what feels like the absolute deathly silence of God? a sense in that moment of silence of knowing that perhaps we have been forgotten or forsaken. Can you imagine as she wrestles, as she has this image in her mind of her daughter being tormented by this demon, as she looks to Jesus who she had hoped would be her rescue and yet who is silent, And who then sees these disciples, these followers of Jesus, who are clearly, because they are never quiet, trying to get Jesus to just tell her to get out. But she will not be stopped. And so she runs up. She does everything she can. She says, he can't hear me, I suppose, or he's not listening. And so I will force him to see me. And so she jumps in front of him. She kneels down and she gives the purest and most heart-wrenching of prayers. I mean, it is simple, but you know what it means. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And then Jesus says to her, I gotta feed the children first. I can't be feeding the dogs. More than likely, this was not the first time that she had been compared to a dog by other 
Jewish people, by men, perhaps even by those who had accused her of being the reason why her own child was tormented with a demon. And so she seems almost nonplussed by this comment of Jesus. Because she looks to him and says, but even dogs, let's be clear, but even I deserve scraps, don't I? You can almost hear in this statement, a statement in which she is asking and hoping that Jesus says yes, but one in which she's also not 100% sure that she believes that. Does she deserve even just some scraps from the Lord? I don't know how long from when her last word was said to when the next word was said by Jesus, but I'm pretty sure that whether it was a tenth of a second or ten minutes, it was plenty enough time for her to remember all the different times when she had been told that she was not worth even a few scraps. Which is why, even though it may be hard, we can at least in some sense imagine that feeling when Jesus looked her in the eyes and said, Woman, great is your faith. Your daughter has been healed. In a moment, the release, in a moment, the peace, in a moment, the healing. You have been heard. You have been seen. You are loved. And then you have the disciples. You know, I almost left them out of this sermon altogether because I almost forgot that they were even in the story. I'm not sure why I forgot. Maybe it's because they were so annoying. Maybe it's because clearly they're not the front and center. They're not on center stage like the woman or like Jesus, or maybe it's because we tend to forget those who remind us most of ourselves. Now, let's give the disciples, um, you know, the benefit of the doubt a little bit. They came into this scene, they were already stinging a little bit, they were already hurting, they were already a little bit down. If you read just what happens right before, Jesus has already chastised them uh, for not understanding. Does, do you still not understand? He said to them after they asked a question about a parable, what's wrong with you, basically? So you know what that's like, you kind of mope around a little bit after you've been chastised by the one you're trying to follow. 
Now, not only that, but all of a sudden, there's this woman. They just wanted to get away. And all of a sudden, there's this screaming Canaanite, this screaming enemy who won't shut up. And again, I want to give the disciples a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was remembering when I worked with refugees for a year in Chicago. And, you know, when you first begin to do something like that, you hear the stories. They're horrific stories. And your heart goes out to them. And you're like, oh, it's brutal. And then you hear more. And then you hear more. And then they keep having these emergencies. And so they keep calling you. And then they keep calling you. And then they keep calling you. And, and, and to be honest, and maybe I'm alone here, but after a while, even if it's the worst emergency or the most horrific story, you just kind of begin to get dead to it. You just want them to be quiet. You just, you just want some space. So the disciples, there they are, and they just keep hearing this this screaming woman. They just wanted some peace and quiet. So she keeps screaming for Jesus, and so they see him. And, you know, they've they've never loved the way that Jesus has seemed to be so welcome to the outsiders. But this time it seems even worse because they're, they're all paying the price in one form or another and so she keeps screaming and so they see Jesus and he's he's giving her the silent treatment they hope it will be helpful but after a while it's clear it's not and even though Jesus's patience seems to be remarkable theirs is not and so they finally go up to him okay Jesus this has been long enough can you just uh, send her away and so then Jesus gives that answer, you remember, you know, about being only, you know, going to the house of Israel and they think okay, well good. Hey, did you hear that lady? You're not in the house of Israel. Come back later. But she doesn't. In fact, she gets around them somehow, and all of a sudden now she's in front of Jesus, and they think, oh, the, have you no shame, woman? And there she is groveling in front of Jesus. Then they hear him give the whole thing about the children and the dogs, and they probably looked at each other with a bit of a chuckle, and they knew finally this would you know, really shut her up and clearly that would be enough of a message but then she said something they weren't even sure exactly what she said but they were sure it wouldn't make a much of a difference but then what they heard this came out of Jesus's mouth in fact they wouldn't have believed it if Jesus hadn't said it that he looked at her not them mind you not the ones who had been walking with him for so long not the ones who had kind of been you know given up everything you remember they left all their nets in order to follow him no 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 it's to her That Jesus says, what a remarkable faith you have. To her? That takes some nerve, Jesus. I mean, if you're a disciple, you've got to be highly annoyed at this point. And so I kept thinking about that this week, and I kept asking myself, well, what, what, what might we learn from this? And, and, and I realized that in some sense, of course, you know, the disciples, almost always the disciples in the story are the ones that we are supposed to look at for trying to understand ourselves. Almost always it's the disciples who are the mirrors. I wish it was Jesus, but it just doesn't tend to be more often than not. It tends to be the disciples. And one might suggest that this week uh, it, it, it's really not just general disciples disciples, if you will, but it almost seems to be geared towards Presbyterian disciples. Because these disciples in this moment, what they wanted was some peace 
and quiet. What they wanted was to be in control. What they wanted was things to be kind of decent and in order. There are ways. We have rules, right? Keep the shouting to a minimum. There's an appropriate way to ask for things and then move on. After you've made your point, you should probably be quiet. If it's not the answer you like, then just go someplace else. Decently and in order. As you know, that's the Presbyterian mantra. We believe very strongly in things being decent and in order. We as Presbyterians like a certain amount of control. And to be sure, I do not believe that we serve a God of chaos. But after looking at a story like this, you can't help but wonder whether at times we worship decency and order and peace and quiet at the cost of not worshiping Jesus. In other words, are there not times when actually God might very much so be working through our annoyances or through the screams of others or through a particular tumult that rather than just trying to shut up, we actually should begin to pay more attention and to ask whether or not there isn't a lesson that the Lord is wanting to teach us right there in the very middle of that screaming and in the very middle of the chaos. As I thought about that, of course, one of the first things I thought about, because this is really where we oftentimes say decently and in order, is in our worship. Now, you probably have seen this uh, particular meme, but if not, well, you've seen the meme, I know, but you can at least see these words. This is something I, I got a good chuckle at this week. You know, this is Presbyterians at a Pentecostal worship service. I got to be honest with you, this is actually real because I've seen myself nowadays at a Pentecostal service. When I go to a Pentecostal service, I look in a better mood than he looks right there. I mean, it's amazing. I don't know what I'm trying to prove, but I am letting everyone around me know that there is not a chance that I am going to clap a hand, not a chance I'm going to smile, not a chance I'm ever moving my hands out of my pockets. Everyone is going to know that they can't move me. And I know that there are many of us who don't necessarily like effusive worship, who are very uncomfortable when people clap a hand, who are incredibly uncomfortable when people may raise a hand or when they may uh, sing a little bit louder. Obviously right now that's appropriate, please don't sing at all, but who may raise their voice or show a bit of physical actual movement. I get that. I'm not trying to change who you are. I am suggesting though that if that isn't you, that when you see that, that you don't get annoyed by it or actually if you do get annoyed by it or distracted by it, rather than simply saying, well, that person's just not doing it in the appropriate way. Really, that person should be quiet. That person should actually go to the uh, 11 o'clock service. And actually, as I'm thinking about it, they should go to a whole other church altogether that perhaps, perhaps rather we should begin just to say, wow, that's a little unsettling to me. And enjoy that. Because here's one of the things that we talk about is that worship is practice for what we do when we go out. 
And if you can be somewhat unsettled in here and lean into that, then it very well may be that you may be more likely when you go out and there is unsettledness or there is annoyance or there is screaming that rather than just trying to quiet it, you might actually lean into it. Because again, I want to suggest to you that we have something more often than not to learn from our annoyances. I mean, think about small things, right? If you're driving and there is somebody in front of you who is going really slowly, what we tend to do, what I tend to do, is simply get angry or try to go around them or talk about how they must have nothing else to do or they must be on their cell phone, which oftentimes they are, or, or something. But all of a sudden, that's all that I do with it. What I never do, what I never do in the midst of my annoyance is say, Lord, is there something that you are trying to teach me? Could it possibly be that I am in far too much of a hurry. I just think I'm annoyed. That person must be wrong. Or what about with our children? We're running around and there they are. They're screaming. They're always screaming. Either they're just screaming around us or they're screaming at us. And what we want to do, quite frankly, is we just want to go behind a closed door. Let's just close the door. But maybe their screaming is actually a sign that what they actually really want, and we probably know this deep down, is they want our attention. So rather than just yelling at them or being annoyed by them, maybe what we should probably do is just stop what we're doing and lean into that. Or maybe it's a spouse or a friend who is annoying you for some reason. There's a season of annoyance and you just can't stop. And what you want to do in those moments is you just want to leave. You want to get away. But perhaps actually right there is trying to tell you something that maybe you're supposed to lean into that rather than simply just being annoyed by it. Or maybe it's other issues that we're wrestling right now with, with a, as a society. I, the big one that I thought about was the issue of racism. Now, I want you to listen to yourself. I want you to hear. As soon as I say that, how many of you, your heartbeat begins to quicken or your blood pressure begins to go up or you begin to think, seriously, this again? If that's you, I want you to know, yes, I am talking to you right now. Because one of the things it seems to me that I'm hearing oftentimes, and let me be frank, I wrestle with this as well, is at times you just want to say, can we please just move on? Why do we have to talk about this again? Can people please just be quiet about this? It's, it gets annoying. It gets exhausting. Or, I see this quite a bit, what we tend to do is we don't like the way that they are screaming. And so what we do is we begin to, we, we, we get distracted conveniently enough, let me add, with how it is that they're screaming. Woman, can you just, can you be quieter in the way that you scream? And we get so concerned with the how that we never focus on the why, which is really what we should be focusing on. Why are you so tormented? What is it that is happening? What is the struggle? And we conveniently are distracted by being upset with the way that they are shouting that we completely miss out on what it is that the Lord might teach us about how we might lean in and rather than just being annoyed or tired of all the screaming we might actually learn something about what God longs for us to understand my 
My point is this, that we as disciples, and especially as Presbyterian disciples, who like things to be done decently and in order, who like to have a sense of control, even though it's a false sense, but we like it anyways, we'll do a lot to have it, and we're anxious if we don't have it. That rather than doing everything we can to try to get those screaming voices, those annoying voices, all of those things away from us, just shut up, just go on, just do something else, bother someone else. Perhaps what the Lord is teaching us in this passage is to simply lean in. Much like Jesus, even if you don't understand it all just then, that rather than just simply ignoring it, that we decide to lean in and to ask, Lord, what might you teach me in this tumult and in this chaos? We are living in a world that seems to just try to shut those up or perhaps even more likely to try and shout over those with whom we are struggling or those with whom we do not understand. But a part of the call that we see in Jesus is for us to continue to lean in and say, Lord, what would you teach us? How might you help us to understand this more deeply? How might you be doing something new? It doesn't explain this whole passage. We could be distracted, I suppose, by the things that we don't understand. Or we can lean into those parts and ask the Lord to teach us anew. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to go against what is our natural proclivity, which is to run away from those things that we do not understand which is simply to try to quiet those who seem to be screaming. We know, Lord, that so often you work in the midst of that disruption. And so we pray that you would give us the patience and the willingness to lean into those disruptions and to be taught by you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.